New polls provide insight into whether Beto O'Rourke's gun control strategy is working in Texas. Plus, an interview with George Mason University's Robert Leiter on a new federal gun rule. That and more on this episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I made the devil run. I gave him poison just for fun. All right. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Gutowski. I'm also the founder of TheReload.com, where you can head over and sign up for our free weekly newsletter right now. Uh, at the website, you get a roundup of all the most important gun news of the week. Just one email in your inbox on every Friday, and uh, you'll be caught up on what's going on. If you want even more in-depth analysis about the goings-on in the gun, with Guns in America, you can buy a membership as well, and you'll get an extra newsletter on Sunday. You'll get uh, exclusive access to hundreds of pieces of analysis and, and exclusive stories that you won't find anywhere else. And you'll get uh, an opportunity to listen to this podcast a day early and appear on it. We actually have a member segment this week, so I'm looking forward to that. It'll be at the end of the show if you want to Stay tuned and hear from one of our members, which is something I always enjoy doing. But um, before we get to all of that, we have our main guests. Uh, Professor Robert Leiter from George Mason University is kind enough to join us this week and talk a little bit about some of the post-Bruin goings-on in uh, gun law and litigation. So welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much for having me. And can you tell people just a little bit more about yourself uh, and some of uh, you know your credentials on Second Amendment. You're obviously very uh, well respected on this topic, and and uh, uh, you've done a lot of work in the area. So I'm an assistant professor at George Mason University and Scalia Law School, and I started researching this topic in graduate school. I actually I did a PhD in philosophy and wrote my dissertation on the right of self-defense. So most people agree that self-defense is permissible, but coming up with a sound philosophical justification for why it's permissible and why it's permissible under the narrow limitations uh, that it is, is actually quite difficult. And so I studied that in graduate school. And then from there, I went to law school and then uh, clerked for Judge Sykes on the Seventh Circuit and Justice Thomas at the Supreme Court and practiced for a few years on both sides of the clerkship. Uh, and then uh, academically, I started at George Mason and I've been here ever since. And I've been writing on uh, the right of self-defense, uh, why political authorities can use force uh, to uh, have compliance with the laws, for example, the fleeing felon rule, and also on gun control and the Second Amendment. So I'm doing it both from the Second Amendment side and from the military side. And so my latest paper actually talks about how we should be translating the modern armies and militia to today. Yeah, so you, you've been very busy in this field and you have a lot of experience on this topic, uh, which is exactly why I wanted to have you on uh, to talk more about a couple of developments starting with a new ruling uh, out of Texas in federal court that uh, strikes down the felony indictment gun ban. Um, to this point, the Federal Firearms Act had prohibited uh, people who were indicted for felonies from receiving firearms while they were under indictment. Um, and uh, Judge Counts, in this case, determined that there was not a historical analog that he could identify, which would uh, give credence to this restriction um, under the new Bruin standard. So uh, can you just give us your, your first reaction, maybe explain a little bit of uh, 
the implications of, of this this particular ruling? So the so federal law prohibits a number of uh, people within a number of categories from even possessing a firearm. And so these are, you know, the felon in possession uh, ban is the most commonly known. There are some others, such as the misdemeanor uh, domestic violence ban, uh, uh, people who are unlawfully using drugs and so on. Uh, in addition to that, federal law has a prohibition that says those who are under indictment for a felony may not receive a firearm, but they may continue to possess firearms that are already owned. And so these are individuals who uh, a grand jury has found probable cause to believe that they've committed a felony and they're heading to trial. And so they're in this kind of in-between status that they can't receive a firearm, they can't transport a firearm in interstate commerce. Uh, but they can possess and presumably carry it within their home state, subject, I suppose, to any restrictions that are placed on them as a condition of bail. Yes, it's kind of a, it's an interesting, um, uh, it's an interesting derivative of the, the felon in possession ban because it's applied to people who haven't actually been convicted of anything yet, um, although they are going through the court process. Uh, but They are, uh, and- Convictions and, and that federal- does come up as a distinction in, in this in this ruling, right? Yeah, no, I mean it's definitely. I mean it's in, it's kind of intermediate state that uh, they are awaiting trial or in trial. If they are convicted, uh, they will lose their gun rights under federal law. Uh, the Supreme Court has assumed, although not with any real justification, that the felon in possession ban is constitutional. It has repeated those assurances even though there are no historical analogs to that. Those were 20th century creations, uh, depending on exactly when you want to date it, you're either from the 1930s or 1962 or maybe 1968, a couple dates that you know can be floated around depending on exactly which law you're referring to. Uh, but there's no analog in the 1700s or 1800s. Uh, and so they're kind of in this middle ground and federal conviction rates are famously high uh, so most of the people who are indicted will, in fact, be convicted or plead guilty and will lose their gun rights. Uh, but while they're in this middle stage, they can possess but not receive. Right. And I guess in this case, the the, uh, the defendant had um, li- I mean, he lied on the background check form. That's what he was ultimately actually convicted of um, because he was under indictment when he bought his firearms um, and. Uh, but he hadn't yet been convicted. And so, uh, but I don't know, do, do you, I guess one, one question I got, um, uh, on Twitter was, was actually, uh, you know, do you think the judge went too far in even deciding the legality of the federal firearms act when the, the actual crime was lying on the background check? Well, there's also a materiality question of uh, whether the, you know, it's not a crime just to lie. The statement has to be material. And so I don't think, uh, I don't think he went too far in doing that. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, it's, uh, and, yeah, I don't think he went too far in looking at it. Okay. Yeah. So that's important. Like this isn't, he's not necessarily going well beyond what the scope of the case is. Uh, although he does, uh go beyond just the felon in or felony indictment section of the fire federal firearms act. Uh, I get, mainly he does this because the government argued uh, that the felon, the federal indictment um, prohibition was uh, linked to the felon in possession ban 
historically and that, that basically the government's argument was, well, this is the same essentially as the, the felon in possession ban. And Heller said uh, in one paragraph that these are longstanding and presumptively constitutional. Uh, so therefore, you know, the, the felony indictment prohibition is also constitutional. And the judge rejected this argument. And part of the reason he rejected it is that uh, he views the felon in possession prohibition as not longstanding, um, despite what the Supreme Court said, and uh, having no historical analog. Do you um, do you think his analysis there is correct? Or, you know, I mean, obviously, these laws, as you mentioned, only date back to the early 20th century, and really, uh, the the federal indictment uh, provision only dates to the, the mid 20th century, the 1950s. So, um, is the judge correct in his um, assertion that neither of these relatively substantial restrictions uh, that are popular among most Americans are are, are actually historically grounded? The judge is correct. I mean, this is one of the questions that comes up in Heller and Bruin's aftermath. Uh, Heller just says in dicta uh, that the felon in possession, that nothing in the opinion should cast doubt on the felon in possession ban, but it never explains why. Uh, and those assurances have been repeated ever since. Uh, they were repeated in McDonald. They've been repeated by various judges in Bruin, or by various justices in Bruin, uh, but never with an explanation for why. And uh, Kevin Marshall actually wrote this wonderful law review article, Why Can't Martha Stewart Have a Gun?, uh, where he goes through the history and notes that there was no historical analog of these felon in possession bans. And I think there are two things to note about the history. Number one, uh, there were no bans that applied to felons as such. These are, as you indicated, mid 20th century creations. Uh, the second is that the definition of a felony is much broader today than it was at common law. So uh, common law, early common law, there were very, very few felonies. These were like murder, rape, robbery. Uh, and then felony, the definition of a felony originally was anything that would result in the forfeiture of your lands and estates. And in the uh, 1800s, this gets uh, the forfeitures die out and a new definition comes in that's any crime punishable by more than one year in prison. Uh, but since then, the theoretical statutory maximum, a lot of crimes have gone up. And so you have a lot of crimes that are essentially misdemeanors. Uh, but have as a theoretical maximum penalty two years, three years, five years. And so the definition of a felony today is much, much broader than anything it would have been historically either. And so what you have are a lot of people who are falling within the band, but who in substance have really done what I think traditionally would have been viewed as a misdemeanor rather than a felony. Yeah. And in fact, I think Judge Counts goes perhaps even further than just felon in possession um, to essentially point out that there really wasn't much of a historical record of uh, taking anyone's guns away. No, um, the people whose guns were taken away in the early days were either people who did not, individuals who did not fall within the people, namely the political community. Uh, so these would have uh, at the framing been 
uh, enemy aliens, uh, American uh, Indians, um, uh, free blacks in a lot of states where there was an open question, at least till Dred Scott, whether they were within the people. Uh, so, and you see in New York, uh, you know, in some of these cases that they're citing these gun bans as evidence. Uh, the second is that during the wars, uh, people who were in actual rebellion uh, were disarmed. And so that was a second category. And what uh, the government has been doing in a lot of these cases is trying to string together these bans and say, well, there's this broad principle that anyone the government deems as dangerous can be disarmed. But that's much broader than the original bans were. Uh, so, you know, but they're trying to, they're trying to basically adapt Bruin's historical test to what was the previous intermediate scrutiny test by just taking it at a very, very high level of abstraction and just saying the government can disarm anyone who's anyone who's dangerous. But uh, Bruin doesn't say it goes quite that generically. Right. Yeah. I think that's going to be a big fight uh, moving forward here is the level of the level of uh, review and this sort of the how far back you you need to step to find an, an analog. Um and uh, and yeah, it's going to raise a lot of serious questions about basically every gun law. It seems, especially the federal gun laws, which didn't appear until the 20th century. Um, and and so it's it's interesting that that's why this particular case I think is uh, is is really noteworthy because it's one of the first to take a stab at um, you know some of these federal gun laws. Uh, and it, it does cast a lot of doubt on them, but th then it, it it also offers up a potential solution, right? Uh, and you you sort of uh, touched on it there, um, which is this: the judge counts talks about how uh, you know the Second Amendment is reserved to the people, uh, like several other rights in the Bill of Rights, you know, the First Amendment, the Fourth Amendment, and um, uh, but at the same time, those uh, those historically, there were subgroups excluded from what was considered the people, um, and they were, uh, in in some cases, felons um, and, and others. So uh, it's a bit more of a, uh, I think, substantial place to root uh, your your argument than just the Native American and Catholic bands that you've seen. New York uh, site and on even Justice Barrett uh, at one point. So uh, I don't know. I'm interested in your thoughts on this particular um, tact that, that Judge Counts is taking in this case. Do you find that to be a persuasive argument for why felon in possession um, bans could withstand uh, the Bruin test if you use this sort of um, uh, argument that there are certain subgroups that don't that aren't included in the people? I still don't think that would work. I mean, I think felons have traditionally been uh, included in the people and uh, they have lost some of their political rights, uh, but not traditionally their right to bear arms. And I think there are two problems here. One is that the analogy doesn't quite work here. And the second is, as I indicated earlier, the definition of a felony is so expanded uh, that it just it covers crimes that aren't, you know, that aren't really within the scope of what a felon would have been at common law. I mean, you know, somebody who uh, mails a handgun commits a felony. Uh, 
you know, there are all kinds of these technical regulatory offenses that, sure. you know, are punished by two years instead of one year, uh, but they are in substance a misdemeanor. And I, I don't, I don't think the history would justify, you know, everyone who has committed a crime punishable by more than one year, no matter what the uh, mental state is. A lot of these are strict liability or crimes that have uh, fairly low mental states because they're regulatory offenses. Many are nonviolent. I just don't think that the history will bear out that all felons of every description uh, are subject to the ban. Now, in the early days of the Gun Control Act, there was a restoration provision. There still is technically on the books a restoration provision that said that those whose gun rights were suspended could apply to the uh, Secretary of the Treasury, now the Attorney General, for restoration of gun rights. But for the last 30 years, Congress has not funded that and has uh, told ATF not to process those. And I, so I think that's going to also raise as applied questions that even if the which has happened, you know, there have been a few of these and they've uh, gotten less traction than I thought they would. But I think you will have people who will say, look, I have been convicted of a nonviolent felony. You know, maybe even my nonviolent felony would have been deemed a misdemeanor at common law. There's no evidence whatsoever that people who have done what I've done are violent. It's way in the past. You should restore my gun rights. And traditionally, there was an administrative process to do that. Now, those people without that administrative process are probably going to re-raise it in the courts and say that the felon in possession ban is unconstitutional. And even if it's constitutional, it's unconstitutional as applied to them. And right. I, yeah, I'm curious what will happen with that. I really have no idea. Yeah, I mean, I, I do. It, it, clearly, there's some appetite among the justices for a nonviolent felon uh, challenge to that law because, you know, obviously Barrett had the uh, dissent um, in a nonviolent felon case where she argued the the prohibition on nonviolent felons is is not constitutional, at least. But I'm I'm interested. Uh, you seem to agree with uh, Judge Counts. Uh, historical interpretation that there isn't a good historical analogy to either the the felony indictment or felony possession uh, ban from you know that that dates only to the 20th century. Uh, so, but at the same time, I, I my understanding is you, you don't think this is going to be upheld on appeal. Why? Why is that? Courts have difficulty being too counter-majoritarian. And as you noted at the outset, this is one of the most politically popular provisions. The felons just don't have a political constituency that advocates them having guns. Uh, and this is one thing both sides can agree on. And I think courts will find it difficult to cut that far uh, against popular opinion. Uh, one of my early Second Amendment uh, articles, I kind of looked at what courts, especially state courts, have historically done here. And I, what I found was that courts often declared unconstitutional laws that were extreme or went beyond what the popular mainstream was at the time, but that they didn't go ahead and radically rewrite a whole bunch of state laws. And so uh, when you had states early on prohibiting the carrying of concealed weapons, they said, fine. Uh, when you had one or two states like Georgia in the early days say, well, we're going to ban all public carry, they said, no, that's too far. Uh, but they also, you know, they also accommodated the desire for regulation. Uh, there was an early case in Kentucky called Bliss versus Commonwealth that said the Second Amendment was absolute and not capable of any restriction. And that was uh, uniformly repudiated by the other courts and eventually by Kentucky through constitutional convention. So I think courts, just as a matter of kind of uh, legal realism, courts 
strike down laws that are particularly extreme, but they generally don't go against the mainstream opinion in this way. And I think they're all there. This is not the only one. There are other laws. Um, I was doing a debate and Daryl Miller, uh, who's a Duke, brought up that, you know, no matter how they interpret the Second Amendment, they're not going to authorize people to carry weapons aboard commercial aircraft. And that's, you know, another example where finding an analog is virtually impossible. You could most certainly have a gun in your carriage or, uh, you know, is subject to the common law crime of going armed to the terror of the people. But, uh, you know, to say that a particular mode of transportation was out, uh, I don't think will happen. I think the other thing that's interesting about the felon in possession, or sorry, the, um, the indictment ban is that it doesn't also reach the concurrent and supplementary power of courts to put reasonable conditions on bail. So even if this were struck down, I think the judge would still have power as a condition of bail to say, well, you're not going to possess a firearm or don't go out and buy a firearm. Uh, I have trouble imagining that, you know, if uh, if Osama bin Laden had been captured and transported back to the United States, well, I guess he wouldn't have been allowed on bail. But, you know, if somebody who's very dangerous would have been allowed on bail, they're going to say, well, unlimited power to buy guns until the jury verdict comes in. I don't. I don't think it's going to happen. Uh, and I think uh, I think it's a mistake to say that every regulation has to have a historical analog. I think, you know, Justice Thomas in his majority said this is not a regulatory straitjacket. You have to analogize a little bit. And I think, you know, there was going to have to be some adaptation to new circumstances and to new types of laws. And I think I think you're seeing some of the growing pains here. Now, one last thing, the good side of the growing pains is that by giving, uh, by causing a division of opinion in the courts, you may see more attention from the Supreme Court. One of the things the Supreme Court does as its core mission is to keep federal law uniform. And so as circuits split on issues, uh, they will step in. Uh, they had not stepped in in the Second Amendment's space for a long time because no court ever struck down a law for on Second Amendment grounds. And then you had the D.C. Circuit do so uh, in Heller when Heller was in the Court of Appeals, and then they got involved. Then there was a circuit split and they had to get involved. So the fact that there may be differing opinions may give the Second Amendment more attention from the federal courts. Yeah, yeah, certainly. Uh, and I'd expect there to be a lot of differing opinions on a lot of these issues uh from here on out because they're dealing with an entirely new standard of review um and that's sort of what's co uh counts uh, judge counts's point uh and he repeated a number of times talking about you know known known unknowns and unknown unknowns and uh you know trying to work his way through this case with the just historical analog as his his guide and um you know, he he didn't seem to like that. I'll be honest. Like, uh, there's a number of comments in in his ruling about, um, you know, for instance, the the difference between disarming somebody in the, uh, you know, the the 18th century versus the 21st century, where he argued at least that, um, firearm ownership at that time was much more vital to bare, basic survival than it is today uh, was one of his arguments for why, you know, things might not, there might not have been the same sort of uh, exact um, historical copies of these types of laws uh, because disarming somebody completely at that time was viewed as, uh, you know, almost a death sentence. And at least this is argument, you know, there's, I'm sure there's probably a lot of people who might disagree with, with how he comes down on this, but that was one of his explanations for why, 
you don't see some of these laws uh, at the at the t- uh, period. Obviously, there's all the the reasons that you laid out there as far as like um, things have changed quite a lot in how we apply criminal justice since that time, um, specifically in wildly expanding what a felon is. But um, you know, and so he's but he's trying to apply the the standard faithfully and and then also offer this his view of how you could move forward um, uh, with a potentially upholding these laws under the Bruin standard uh, in a way that wasn't presented to him as an option by the, it sounds like the government didn't do very much, didn't put a whole lot of effort into this case. For, at least that's the, the way the judge makes it sound. Uh, they didn't really offer him quite a lot of really any evidence of beyond surety laws, which are really quite different from gun bans um, ownership bans or, or purchase bans, uh, to, you know, support this idea that, that the law is historically grounded. So he kind of came up with his own explanation. I think you're going to see a lot of judges do that. And that's how you're going to, that's how things are going to work themselves out is to, but by the time it makes it to the Supreme court, they're going to have a couple different options for, and how these things should be interpreted under that, that text and tradition standard that, that justice Thomas uh, laid out in, in Bruin. Um, I mean, do you think that's a fair view of how how this is all going to eventually uh, proceed? I think that's a fair view. So one thing about Bruin, there was a lot of law on the right to carry arms uh, after the framing. This is an you know, it just happens that Bruin is on a topic where there, you know, they were in state courts under state constitutional analogs, but uh, the courts were treating the state constitutional analogs as uh, coextensive with the Second Amendment. And so Bruin in applying a test had a lot of law to work from. Uh, uh, that is not the case for a lot of these novel provisions. And so you're, what you're going to have, I think your analysis is right. I mean, I think you're going to have two sets of challenges. You're going to have challenges uh, from gun groups that are very targeted and very sophisticated. But I, you're also going to have a lot of challenges from criminal defendants. And, <clears throat> excuse me, the challenges from criminal defendants uh, maybe more or less sophisticated, depending on how much time the public defender has to research it. And so from that end, when you get these less sophisticated challenges or less sophisticated responses from the government, uh, you may see judges trying to do their homework and fill it in. Yeah. Uh, but that's always difficult for the judge because you know one of the advantages of being a judge is that you should have the parties present the issues and then you get to decide when you go off on your own and do research. Uh, there's always the risk that there's something you don't quite understand. And I think right. the second thing that's hard about this is just how to uh, how to adapt history to today. And there aren't good answers. You know, a lot of as you as your questions um, indicated, and it's true, a lot of the fundamental assumptions of the framing generation have changed. And it's not always clear how you apply original method, originalist, originalist methodology in the face of fundamentally changed assumptions uh, that requires some effort at adaptation or translation. And I think to go down that path is difficult and controversial. And I think you'll see uh, judges do it very differently. And I think aided by the fact that the uh, gun issue is so politically salient that judges, depending on their personal priors, are going to view the cases very differently. Yeah, of course. I, and I think that's all extremely valid. But of course, the balancing tests present the same sorts of issues anyway for judges. You know, it's not 
I mean, maybe worse. Yeah, perhaps even more so. Yeah, no, um, I mean, I think the big problem with the balancing test is that judges could just kind of say, well, public policy, we're going to just defer, which is what they did, and just say right. we're out of it. Just defer the government every time. I mean, I think the biggest problem right now with the Second Amendment uh, in terms of doing the sort of historical approach is that we don't have a coherent conception that er, that people agree on about what the Second Amendment is supposed to protect. So I think we see some switch right now uh, from having some military related value to being for civilian self-defense against crime. And the, the kind of open question at the moment is whether this individual self-defense has superseded the military related objectives of the Second Amendment or are supplementary to them. And answering that question is going to get you a very different set of answers in terms of how you look at things like uh, so-called assault weapons bans and magazine restrictions. Uh, you know, if you say, well, look, the Second Amendment is designed for individual self-defense and we're banning a narrow category of weapons, then, you know, you may say, well, these laws are constitutional. If, on the other hand, you take the Second Amendment as seriously in its statement that it's trying to provide for a well-regulated militia, then targeting weapons because of their perceived military characteristics is very problematic. So I think, you know, I, I think Heller doesn't really answer this. Uh, and it's not clear where the courts are going to go on this, but I think this is sort of the fund most fundamental question that's laying out there at the moment and uh, judges will ultimately need to answer to figure out which way to go. Yeah. And we could do a whole podcast just on, on that topic and maybe we should. Um, but right now I wanted to focus a little bit on gun care. You brought that up earlier. Uh, one of the things that you've uh, been writing about uh, and uh, sort of warning about, or, or at least uh, 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 talking about how it's been undercovered is the New York's new gun carry law and the way that it sort of flips the presumption of uh, where it's lawful, lawful to carry a firearm. So in every other state, it is presumed that you can carry inside of a public um, business uh, if they don't post a sign indicating otherwise. But now in New York, they've done the exact opposite of that. Now it's, it is a crime to carry. Uh, and, and also a lot of States don't make it a crime to carry where it's posted necessarily, at least not that that isn't a specific crime in a lot of States, but in New York, it will now be a, a crime to carry in a location that doesn't post that they want people to carry there. Uh, and this is a, a pretty significant ch uh, change and uh, I guess innovation in the gun control space. Uh, and one that you think is, uh, you know, this novel approach is, is going to be challenging for gun rights advocates. Is that right? I think it's going to be very challenging for them. So Second Amendment is a claim against the government. It is not a claim against private businesses or pri other private property holders. And so, uh, you know, it's pretty clear that if private property owners want to keep gun owners out, they can do so. The question is, how do they do so? Is the default rule going to be that you're allowed in unless you're told to leave? Or is the default rule going to be that you're not allowed in unless you're specifically invited? And, you know, the default property rules have been traditionally that in private homes, you really should be invited onto the property unless you're just walking up the door to knock. You know, there's often an implied invitation for that. And that uh, for businesses, it's the opposite, that you can come on unless you've been excluded. Um, 
there are a few states, uh, including uh, South Carolina, I think, and Louisiana, that say you can bring your gun onto private businesses unless you're excluded, but you can't bring them into somebody's home uh, unless you're uh, unless you ask permission. So uh, some of the pro-gun states have some sort of restriction, at least in some cases, saying that there's a presumption that you're not allowed to bring it in. Now, the New York innovation is to combine private property with the power of government by saying you are presumed not to be able to bring it in anywhere, and you're going to be guilty of a felony if you do so, not just a trespass. And uh, I think this is a very hard issue, uh, you know, because it is uh, for conservatives. It's at the intersection of gun rights and private property rights, both of which they believe in. Uh, in terms of the Second Amendment, the Second Amendment doesn't, you know, there has been no, uh, there's been very little um, law on what the presumption has to be. Uh, the closest analog I can think of this is that Alabama uh, in the early 1900s prohibited possessing a fire, a pistol on property, not one's own. And the Alabama Supreme Court actually upheld the prohibition. So uh, that's the only case law that I think is analogous to this. Uh, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure the Second Amendment says anything about what the default rule is either way. And so I don't think I think gun rights advocates, uh, from what I've read online, I think think that this is an easy case because the practical implication is a de facto ban on public carry, which it is. Right. Uh, but I don't think it's a quite. A, I don't think it's quite that easy given how they've co-opted private property. I think it was quite an ingenious way to do it. Uh, but um, well, I'll let you uh, follow up with that. But I have more to say on why it may still be unconstitutional. Yeah, I, know, I definitely want to hear that. I just, uh, you know, obviously, I think the the main argument is that you've seen what you've seen mostly is gun rights advocates focus on the fact that this law is really an attempt to just make gun carry off limits everywhere um, in basically a direct. Uh, and they've in fact done that. Uh, people in upstate New York are far worse off today than they were under Bruin, because uh, before Bruin, policies, uh, licensing policies were at the local level, and at least geographically, most of the counties were shall issue in practice. And the irony of the May issue states was always that it was uncertain and potentially difficult to get a license. But once you got a license, you had pretty wide freedom of what you wanted to do about with it. Uh, that guns were always more restricted in the South and in the pro-gun areas uh, uh, than they were in a lot of the, you know, the May issue states, it was hard up front, but once you got through the gate, uh, there were no restrictions on bars or public transit or any of this. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, states have come back. And uh, so, it, you know, a person who has a pistol, an unrestricted pistol license in upstate New York after Bruin and after this law is far worse off uh, than right. before Bruin. Uh, yeah. And you, you yep. saw uh, Governor Hochul there, the Democrat, um, basically say that uh, admit that the, there'd only be a, a few places where it would be legal to actually carry a gun after this law went into so this place, is, especially in New York City. And so that I think what people uh, in the gun rights community have noted is like that that is just a complete and total, I don't know, middle finger to the Supreme Court because they're basically just doing exactly what the court told them they can't do. Um, and so I think people view this flipping of uh, private property or, or public business access um, on its head to be part of that and just consider the whole law to be unconstitutional. And there hasn't been a whole lot of discussion uh, about why that particular novel approach is 
uh, unconstitutional. So, I mean, I am interested in what, you know, now that you've laid out the risks, what do you, why do you think it's, it's not um, necessarily going to stand up? I think there's a middle approach here. So, uh, you know, the kind of two stock positions right now are that either it's constitutional because the default rules aren't constitutionally mandated or uh, gun rights advocates are challenging these laws and saying, well, there's no historical tradition for doing this. Uh, but I think there's a middle approach here that, you know, what New York is doing in some ways is analogous to how Southern legislatures acted after Brown versus Board of Education ordered the desegregation of schools. And so what you saw after Brown was massive resistance uh, including legal resistance in a few different forms. Now, what's interesting about the New York law is the New York law does not actually flip the presumption. We've been saying this, but it's not actually true. And if you look at the law, the law is heavily gerrymandered. So the law does not apply to police officers or other law enforcement officers, including those right. who are off duty, and it doesn't apply to retired law enforcement officers. So the law is gerrymandered only against license holders. Now, if you really flip the presumption, what that would mean is that no one would be authorized to bring a gun without explicit consent, except for officers who were justified in committing what would otherwise be a trespass. So an officer who had a warrant or was in hot pursuit of a felon uh, could go on to private property without the owner's permission. But a police officer getting a coffee and a donut on a break uh, would have no authority to go against the private property owner's wishes. And with, you know, a fortiori, a, an off-duty officer and even more so a retired officer who has no law enforcement powers whatsoever, has no authority to go on private property against the owner's wishes. So if they were, if New York were truly flipping the presumption, then the presumption should apply across the board, except in those cases where the officer would be justified in committing a trespass. Uh, so they've heavily gerrymandered this law. And I think that's somewhat analogous. If you go back to what the states did, the Southern states did after desegregation, uh, the orders came down. There were a couple different versions of this. And one version is some of the uh, states passed laws saying, well, we're going to abolish public schools. Uh, but when we abolish public schools, we're going to give you tax breaks for private schools. And there's going to be a lot of uh, government participation in these private schools. And the Supreme Court said, no, you can't evade the desegregation order by, quote unquote, privatizing your schools while still maintaining what are, in essence, de facto public schools uh, by you know, that they have heavy uh, participation. And on the other hand, there was a case that involved uh, the desegregation of public pools where Jackson, Mississippi said, well, you know what, we're not going to run a pool system at all. It doesn't matter uh, what race you are. We're out of the pool business entirely. And the court said, well, if you're out of the pool business entirely, uh, we'll let you do that because you're not required to run a pool. You're not required to run public pools. And we realize, we realize that some of the people who voted for this had pernicious motives. Uh, some others may have legitimately believed that the pools wouldn't have been economically viable. We get that. Uh, we're not going to go into the motivations that much. If you're going to have a neutral law that says no pools for anyone, fine. But if you're going to gerrymander your law to create a de facto public school system that has the guise of private schools, 
that just violates what we, our remedial decree. And we're going to order you to stop doing that and to reinstate the public schools. And I think that middle position may have considerable validity here. If New York really wants to flip the presumption, uh, it can do so. But it has to actually flip the presumption and tell law enforcement officers, no, you cannot go on to private property unless you're invited. Uh, but if they're going to gerrymander the law only to make it impossible for license holders to carry guns in public and no one else, that just seems like a flagrant disregard of Bruin. Uh, and so it may not be all or nothing. There may be this middle ground and this middle ground may be advantageous to gun owners because, of course, uh, there may not be the political will within the legislature to tell retired police and others and off-duty police that, no, you will commit a felony if you bring your gun on private property uh, without permission. So I don't I, I don't think this is an all or nothing thing. Uh, you're right that they are thumbing their nose at them, but there is a kind of precedent on how you handle this. And so there may very well be a middle position here that is uh, that is not one or the other. That's interesting. So, yeah, so the police carve outs, which are pretty common to a lot of these strict gun laws, uh, of course, uh, you see that as a as a sort of Achilles heel for these. Yeah. For now, this particular reform. Some of these may be justified. So some of the you know, some of the theories on off duty police officers carrying guns is at least if they're in their jurisdiction is that uh, they are authorized, even though they're not on the clock to make arrests mm -hmm. and to intervene. And so it gives them so it gives added police coverage to the jurisdiction. I think it's more problematic um, when off uh, when retired officers are just given special privileges. So you see right. a lot of the assault weapon bans uh, that they exempt retired police officers from the ban on assault weapons and magazine capacity restrictions. And those, I think, are hugely problematic. These officers do not have police powers. It's just basically a special interest carve out for them. And yeah. in fact, the Ninth Circuit actually, uh, when it found against the individual Second Amendment right, actually struck down the retired law enforcement officer carve out of the federal assault weapons ban. Uh, but that decision never got much traction beyond the Ninth Circuit. Hmm. All right. Well, uh, I mean, I think that's fascinating. We'll, we'll have to look for more uh, from you on this topic, because I think it I think you're right. I think this is uh, a novel approach that's going to be a, a significant problem potentially for gun rights advocates uh, and one that's potential, you know, has, has a lot of potential to spread beyond New York um, to the other uh, former May issue states as well. I wouldn't be surprised if it cropped up in California and, and, you know, Massachusetts and Illinois and, and elsewhere. Well, you know, we'll have to wait and see how it plays out in court, but, but uh, I'm looking forward to reading more uh, from you on the topic and uh, perhaps having you back on the show again in the, in the near future. But until then, where can people uh, find more of your writing? So I have a couple of different places. My academic writing uh, is on uh, SSRN and you can find me by looking me up there. I also have a blog where I deal with the more day-to-day -day issues called Standing His Ground. And so you can go to www.standinghisground.com and my blog deals with anything from the right of self-defense to gun control in the Second Amendment. And I have plans to blog uh, about this issue and also about uh, some of the new FedEx and UPS policies. And I will say, you know, it's kind of my parting shot. I think uh, for gun owners, the most significant regulation these days are coming from private parties, not the state. 
And we see that with the, you know, some of the credit card coding and uh, some other yep. things that, uh, you know, even as uh, gun owners are winning in court right now, uh, the vacuum is being filled with private regulation and that private regulation may be much stricter than anything that legislatures uh, can pass. Yeah. Yeah. We just did a podcast with Larry Keene from the National Shooting Sports Foundation on on that merchant category code change so people can head over and listen to that but uh we're gonna head over now and and do the news update so all right well thank you all right ladies and gentlemen it's time for the weekly news update i'm contributing writer jake fogelman joined as always by reload founder and host steve gutowski how are you this week steve i'm doing good how are you doing jake i'm doing pretty good um Got a couple big stories that uh, are going to be highly relevant, I think, for the upcoming gubernatorial race down in Texas. Um, one is a, a new poll to kind of show where things are at between incumbent Governor Greg Abbott and the Democratic challenger, Beto O'Rourke. Uh, if you want to tell us a little bit about what that poll found. Yeah, we have a couple of polls, uh, it's like two or three of them that came out recently in that race. Um, the first one, which was... Uh, the, I believe it's the Texas Tribune and the University of Texas at Tyler. They um, they found that Abbott now has an 11 point lead over O'Rourke, which is uh, just a point off from his biggest lead in that poll to date, uh, back from even before O'Rourke won the nomination. So, uh, is and it's you know an expansion of his lead from the last poll. It's not a huge expansion. I think it's about a a one point ex- expansion, but. Uh, <clears throat> it did bring the the real clear politics average for the race up to I think it was like seven point eight, so significant lead for Abbott going you know into the home stretch here. We're almost at October, um, which is of course the the last real campaigning month of the year. Uh, we still have you know another another week until then, but uh, it is an important indicator in the race that this is not really getting any closer, despite. Uh, Beto O'Rourke's focus on gun control policies. He's, he's stuck with that, with that focus. He's really still emphasizing the need for more gun restrictions in his mind. And uh, that has been really a central point of his campaign. It's not obviously not the only thing that he's, he's running on. And I don't know that the, you know, the race is uh, Abbott wants to focus the race on things like immigration, of course. um, But O'Rourke has tried to keep guns at the top of uh, mind for Texas voters, and it just hasn't really worked out for him so far. Yeah, no, I think that's the key. Uh, You know, we've been talking about this for at least a year now about now that he's running statewide in Texas again. Will he or won't he stick with his gun control message? Obviously, it's, I guess, popular knowledge would would suggest that that's tough, tough sledding in a state like Texas. But as you point out, he's he's stuck with it through the campaign trail. He's flip flopped a bit, but in terms of his exact position, but he's generally hit that issue pretty hard. And as you yeah. said, it's not really paying dividends, it looks like, at least in the polling. Right. I mean, he has uh, he has changed his tact, I will say, obviously. He doesn't talk as much about his confiscation plan. Um, he's, he's, sort of, he's gone back and forth on that, like you mentioned. Uh, you know, he's obviously very well known for saying he wants to take everyone's AR-15s and AK-47s. Um, it's one of the reasons this race is particularly interesting for us, right? I mean, Texas is, or at least the, the, the saying, or maybe the delusion, I don't know at this point, 
uh, is that Texas is trending bluer <clears throat> over the years. And somebody like Beto O'Rourke has, you know, a, a possibility of flipping the state uh, that has traditionally been a Republican stronghold. That's sort of the big idea that uh, going into this race and has been for a while with with O'Rourke, even though he's he's continually lost these campaigns, despite you know a lot of outside uh, help, uh, a lot of excitement from around the country and democratic areas for, for his campaigns. But um, the other big reason is that he's there's a huge stark contrast between O'Rourke and Abbott on gun policy, right? I mean, O'Rourke is one of the furthest left of any major candidate across the country. Like he really literally wants to confiscate people's firearms. Um, it's not a theoretical thing. Um, he has said so very definitively. Uh, now he's, he's backtracked on that and then gone back and doubled down on it and then backtracked and doubled down. His campaign website still says that he doesn't believe anyone should be able to own AR-15s and AK-47s. Um, but his message on guns doesn't focus on that anymore. It focuses on, uh, he, he spent a lot of time focusing on this idea that Greg Abbott should call a special session to uh, look at new gun restrictions, specifically banning anyone under the age of 21 from owning AR-15s and, and AK-47s and other firearms, um, you know, under the sort of assault weapons banner. And so uh, he's tried to shift to that point. Abbott has said that that's not constitutional, given some of the recent rulings on uh, restricting firearms rights of uh, 18 to 20 year olds, uh, which which Abbott is corrected. There have been federal courts have been trending against that. Uh, in recent years, in a couple of cases, as we've covered, but uh, but the polling indicates that people in Texas are open to that policy more so than they are to um, banning or confiscating AR-15s. Uh, we had another poll this week that showed a majority of Texans oppose an assault weapons ban, um, and so you know, it's sort of another poll in that vein of. Uh, evidence that the assault weapons ban is becoming less and less popular in the United States. Uh, certainly Texas is a little more uh, gun rights favorable than a lot of other states, but it's still interesting to see that. And it's perhaps uh, one of the reasons why Beto is not doing quite so well. I was just going to say, I think that possibly speaks to why uh, Abbott's lead might be growing slightly. As you said, it's only a point or two, but it's still growing while around the country you're seeing these races where, you know, a few months ago we thought there's this red wave. There's this talk of this red wave and you're starting to see a lot of those races narrow. And in some cases in swing races, you're starting to see a little bit of a Democratic edge. So I think that is interesting that while that's going on in a state that, you know, the wisdom that's been talking uh, in D.C. that, oh, Texas is turning blue, Texas is going to turn blue. Well, you're starting to see it spread apart the other way where the Republican is still re retaining and even gaining on his advantage. And, and as you said, that Siena College poll that found a majority of Texans oppose an assault weapons ban, I think that at least plays some part in that. Um, I think it's safe to say. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, interestingly, the, the Texas Tribune poll found, I think it was like 53% support for mandatory buyback. Um, 
so, and obviously um, a lot of s- Texas polls are not that divergent from uh, national polling. Now, obviously, the that Texas Tribune poll asks about uh, mandatory buyback of um, assault style weapons. It doesn't give a none of these polls give a definition for what they mean by assault weapon or assault style weapon. And these are obviously nebulous terms as we've talked about a lot in the past, but uh, certainly they they apply to at least ARs and AKs, but generally, and while definitions vary significantly from state to state, um, you know, in assault weapons ban statutes, uh, they certainly cover a lot more than ARs in the case. But either way, um, you know, that language between banning assault weapons in the Siena poll and a mandatory program of buybacks from current owners in the Tribune poll might also cause a little bit of variation there because maybe people don't, you know, layman might not understand what a buyback is. Um, right. I mean, yeah, hopefully people would understand mandatory buyback means you don't have an option and it's confiscation essentially, but um, that might explain some of the difference. Uh, also there's what does banning mean? Uh, that could mean confiscation as well. In theory, True. True. Um, usually people mean it to say no new sales, but um, again, they don't, these pollsters don't provide any definitions to the people they're asking these questions from. So, you know, there's, there's a little bit of ambiguity that goes on with some of these results, but, but I do think that, um, you know, there's certainly evidence in the polling that Texans want stricter gun laws, or at least they say they do. Um, and so that should open up and, and, you know, get those policies that he's put forward aren't, uh, you know, wildly unpopular in these polls. Sure. So there ought to be more space for him to gain on this issue, but uh, the polling indicates it's not what's happening. Um I believe there was a, a third poll, I believe, uh, that we covered. Oh, yeah. Um, the Dallas Morning News, I believe. Yeah. The Morning News poll, which found uh, and I might be mixing up some of these. So go, make sure you go over the relay. Yeah, read, the piece. Look, read the piece. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's a lot of polls and it's a lot of University of Texas involved in like every one of these polls <laughs> <laughs> for whatever reason. But um, they uh, they found that um, Abbott and. And O'Rourke are, are tied on who Texans believe would handle gun uh, violence better. So he's not really gaining an advantage. And then, of course, uh, multiple polls also found that guns are not a top priority for voters, even in Texas, you know, where they had the Uvalde shooting happen. It's still ranking uh, fifth in one poll and sixth in another poll as far as, you know, top issues in the race that are influencing people's votes. So. That's probably a big reason why he's not gaining a lot of ground, um, even though he might be um, taking the positions that Texans say they agree with more often in the polling. It's also something that's not really motivating people, um, and they're not really sure of him, it seems like. Yeah. Um, even if he's uh, saying policies, he's, he's – um, supporting policies that they say they agree with, they maybe they don't trust him in particular. I yeah. don't know. It's that's, interesting. That's sort of a phenomenon we've covered in the past too, sort of the disconnect between 
uh, polling that suggests people support something pretty strongly. And then when push comes to shove and a vote needs to be cast on it, it doesn't always work out the same way that the polls suggest. You know, we've seen that with ballot referendum, for example, in, in various states on, on gun control measures. So that's, it's quite possible yeah. that's what's going on here as well. Yeah. That's the thing about polling is like you got to it's not necessarily that the poll is skewed or, or you know, done wrong. Obviously, you know, polling is not an exact science. There's sure. a bit of art to it. So, um, you know, you're not necessarily going to predict everything perfectly or line up perfectly with reality. Um, but it's more an issue of like just because somebody says something in a poll doesn't necessarily mean that that's their top priority or, or that they're or that they even necessarily understand the question. Um, or that it's going to motivate them to vote a certain way. And so, you know, it, you got to examine these polls with uh, the proper context. And, uh, you know, I think if you look at the breadth of the polling on this race right now, it says that while people might have a generalized uh, desire for more gun control, because they perhaps they think it'll help prevent things like Uvalde in the future, they're not that sure about it. Uh, and they're not that committed to voting off of it. And they don't necessarily trust Beto O'Rourke to uh, carry it out the way that they'd like to see done. Um, so, uh, you know, we'll, we'll continue to follow that race. And uh, I think it's going to be one of those hallmark races for how gun politics plays out, because it's also one of the areas where you have a, a major race that does have guns as a top issue where that's not really true so far in a lot of these other races. Although uh, every town did just buy a, a million dollar ad campaign in Wisconsin against Senator Ron Johnson, the Republican there. So, um, you know, it, we're getting into that period where we're going to see election spending really explode. And so we'll be on top of that as well and start to cover some of these other races and how they're how they're playing out in terms of gun politics, because there's just been so much that's happened the last uh, since the last election that really affects gun politics, that it's it's not really clear how things are going to work out. I mean, you had um, record gun sales for two years in a row with uh, millions of new gun owners uh, who are uh, from you know demographics that are not traditionally you know Republican voters necessarily. Um, you had the Supreme Court's Bruin decision, uh, which is, has massive implications for gun laws throughout the country. And the, but you also had things like um, the Uvalde shooting, right? It was one of the worst shootings in American history. Um, and you had uh, the House pass the assault weapons ban the first time in 30 years. Uh, you know, there's a lot that's going on that uh, we need to wait and see how it's going to play out politically, right? What the new state of play for, for guns in America is, you know, you had a, a brand new federal law, the first new federal gun restrictions in decades as well. You know, how is that all going to play out in the elections? Um, and that's what we're trying to find out by following some of these key races. So we're going to stay on top of that, but, but that's it for now. We're, we're going to head over to uh, our member segment. We have a member segment this week. So I'm pretty happy about that. And uh, we'll go over there now. All right. We're back with a member segment this week. We have Reload member Bobby Mercer with us. Uh, welcome to the show, Bobby. Hey, thanks, Stephen. Uh, glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. We appreciate you joining the show and, and doing a little bit 
uh, of an interview with us and and given us just some insight into who our reload members are because uh, I think uh, we got a pretty wide variety of people who subscribe and I'm always interested to hear everyone's stories. Now we met actually just recently at uh, the Liberal Gun Clubs um, Virginia event uh, out out at the Cove out out in. Uh, Western Virginia, but not West before you get to West Virginia, but mm-hmm. it's Western mm-hmm. Virginia. Uh, and I spoke to, to your group, but you're a member of, uh, of the Liberal Gun Club, right? I am. Um, and I'm actually, I'm now the treasurer of the Maryland DC, Virginia chapter. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, and, and so, uh, can you just tell people a little bit about the Liberal Gun Club? I'm sure it sounds weird to some people, uh, out there. Right. Well, it's one of the things it's it's just what it sounds like it's a it's a place for left of center people who are interested in firearms to come together uh there's a big social aspect of it where we just like to hang out and we do that online we do that in person we go shooting we have range days people have trainings and there's instructors and then there's also a, a political component where we lobby uh we have a lobby day that we go to and you know and I was involved in this year's one uh for that and and uh yeah trying to especially give people who are left of center politically a voice in the firearm discussion in this country. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I think counter to what a lot of conservatives might uh, assume about you guys, uh, you're not for necessarily new gun bans or anything like that. You um, there, there's a certain stereotype about liberal gun owners uh, in conservative circles that, you know, they're, they're sort of uh, they, they're like uh, FUDs, right. Is the, common term you'll hear where they they want to have their guns but they're okay with banning a lot of other guns but i would uh, i don't think that's really a good description of of where you guys fall uh, on the spectrum i would agree with that no we uh we we like guns and you've, you've hung out with us and we like to shoot everything and we are specifically um for like liberal gun club as far as like our stance on things is we are big proponents of root cause mitigation actually going mm-hmm. at issues, social issues that might be that drive violence rather than like, as we say, like blanket gun bans or magazine capacity things or other kind of like what I think we term like window dressing or band-aids. Like it's sort of a, I think it's fair to say it's kind of like a reaction. So that happens, people react and they kind of the only thing that you're given, especially if you're a left of center person, like if you don't, if you're not in the firearms community, you're like, oh, gun control. You know, it's like it seems like the media sort of gives you that one answer that traditionally mm-hmm. conceived gun control is the answer to violence and to the things that happen that are terrible events. And uh, as gun owners, we're kind of like, well, is that, we don't really think that that's true. And we think we have the, the data and evidence. If you actually research it, it's like, no, there are other things that are more important. You know, it's like uh, homicide rates are cl- more closely related to the inequality, you know, the Gini index you know, hmm. than anything else. So, um, so I think we are probably, and I'm not a spokesperson for them, but it's, right, I course. think it's, uh, you know, um, giving but this people, gives a good insight into why you, why you joined. Right. Yeah. You know, it's like, your yeah, yeah. So it, 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 it aligns with a lot of my own views of, you know, giving people resources to thrive and giving people, um, you know, believing and giving people access to things like healthcare and, you know, good schools and mm-hmm. uh, violence intervention programs, um, and basically supporting communities, and having that as being sort of, you know, and right. reducing any still very much a, a liberal world, right? But you just disagree on firearms, exactly, exactly. 
Yeah, exactly. that makes sense. So you don't like Trump and McConnell, but you like Smith and Wesson. <laughs> Man, you, you read my mind, Stephen. <laughs> I'll have to remember but, that one. But so what, what was it that got you into uh, firearms in the first place? Well, uh, I think I'm a combination of like the traditional gun culture and then what people call like gun culture 2.0. So hmm. my access to firearms was I didn't grow up with guns in the house, but as a teenager, um, I got into me and my dad really started bonding over liking firearms, going to the range. And like, that was like one of my best memories of being a teenager was like falls coming, right? The fall Sunday morning, the air is cold. You go outside. It's the smell of the range. It's the feeling at a time, like just having time with your dad and that kind of a thing. That was really what got me into, into firearms and into enjoying it. Um, and that was my start. Life went by. I didn't uh, shoot guns for a good period of time. And I moved to the West Coast and I came back because of some family uh, health issues. Um, and then eventually, uh, when my parents passed, um, I got my dad's guns. So now this was, you know, a number of years ago, but uh, all of a sudden I had these again. And it was like, man, I remember when we used to go shooting and I remember what that felt like. And I was holding these things that my dad had held and it was that connection again. So I wanted to go mm. shooting more and I realized I liked it. I never lost it. Just life went in a different direction and it came back. Um, sure. So that was that traditional part of being into firearms. But the more modern part was the political climate changing. 2020 happened, pandemic, social unrest. And that got me into uh, thinking more in terms of like self-defense and having that kind of a connection with things, um, you know, with rising violence against marginalized communities, you know, my partner's a person of color. So it's like one of the reasons, actually the reason I got a concealed carry permit isn't really for me. Like I, I probably would have got one, but what really made me do it was like, you know, when, when things are said about immigration, it has a like, or anything like that, where you get let's be scared of brown people, black people. Um, it has an effect of radicalizing certain people. So it's like, I'm like, well, if somebody, you know, it's like having a viewpoint of, if you decide to avail yourself of your second amendment rights, I think, you know, I believe you should be able to do that. And so choosing to, if we're walking down the street, you know, if somebody wants to do something because they've been emboldened in some way. So that kind right. of thinking is what really got me into the self-defense aspect of it. Uh, you know, and sort of that. And that was more recent. That so was more recent. So that you was didn't like get a, your, yeah, your your concealed carry license until just recently. Yeah, 2020. Hmm. Hmm. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I mean, and, and you're clearly not alone on that front uh, of reconsidering that uh, the the purpose of, of firearms ownership and and some of the um, the self defense aspects of of carrying a firearm even. Mm -hmm. um, and and so. Uh, is that when you joined uh, Liberal Gun Club and started to seek out pe other people who maybe uh, also enjoy guns but still have a similar worldview as you? Yeah, um, especially during the pandemic because it's all online. And if you uh, go on YouTube or you go on to you know, gun channels and things like that, it tends to be very conservative or mm -hmm. you know sometimes it's neutral. But there tends to not be a lot of spaces where you can feel like you can talk about 
your worldview and talk about firearms without it turning into something else. So that's where I found, I actually forget, don't even remember where I found, I probably searched where do liberals who shoot guns get together in the, in Google or something? I probably did that. And I was like, come on, right. it has to be something out there. And that's where I found Liberal Gun Club. Uh, so it was online at first. and But then, you know, we've met in person since the pandemic uh, has eased up. Um, and then that's where I found out about uh, the reload was actually hmm. through them. And, yeah. uh, and then I met you. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and I've been to, uh, obviously, I've covered the Liberal Gun, Gun Club for a couple of years now. Um, and I've, I've even been to the national conference. I believe your national conference is coming up in a couple of weeks, right? Out in Las Vegas. It is. Um, and I, I went to the one in Florida a few years back. And, uh, you know, one of the interesting things to me uh, about uh, what I heard from other members was that, uh, yeah, I mean, you have the you have people in the gun community who are very conservative and are not open to the, the idea of, of liberals owning guns or they're very dismissive of it or they think that they're um, you know, out to take away their firearms rights, uh, um, as we discussed earlier. But, uh, but you also have a lot of people on the, the liberal side of things who are very um, uh, disapproving of, of liberals owning firearms as well. And, and that's actually another, uh, some of them said that was even more of a reason why they wanted to join uh, Liberal Gun Club, and that they, they kind of keep secret the uh, the gun owning part of their lives from some of their liberal friends because of the stigma. That's, I mean, what has your experience been with that? It, it can be. Yeah. Uh, it can be something where, well, it's like in any circle of, of people, if you know people's views on things, or you at least, maybe you don't know, maybe it's an opportunity mm -hmm. where we should actually just talk to each other more. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, if you think you might have an inkling of how people are, you might not be the first thing you say to them. It might not be something that you bring up in conversation. And also it's not a shared interest, so it might not be something that comes up anyway. But um, yeah, I think a lot of our audience as like the political side of Liberal Gun Club, and I can't, I can't speak on behalf of, of the club, but from my perception, right. at least it's a lot of it is uh, Democrats. It is people who mm -hmm. are, who may not even be aware of the statistics that we can show them who also mm -hmm. may not have anybody who's able to speak to them. And it's kind of like, like the tone that you bring to this show, you know, which is one of the reasons why I heard it and I subscribe because it's a, it's a, just a more, it's not neutral, but it's like, uh, it's fact-based. It's nobody's screaming. And it, you know, if you're trying to have a real conversation, you can just talk. And I think yeah. that a lot of the politicians have people screaming at them. And when we show up and we're like, hey, we just want to talk to you about this. And we and it's also, I think, giving people the benefit of the doubt, like some people are just deeply anti-gun and you're not going to change mm -hmm. them. And that's true with anything in life. Right. But there are other people who are like, no, I actually didn't realize that this was that. And I just sort of, you know, this just sort of went along with the other other views that were sort of just floating around in the air. And if you can talk to them, you know, reasonably, you can get through. So, yeah, a, I think a big part of our audience is trying to talk to um because we i guess because we feel like we see that they're not seeing the whole picture we're like mm. we, we 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 understand that you're trying to do the right thing but we also see that the way that it's going about isn't giving you the results that you think it's going to yeah it's interesting you know i've i've uh, the the liberal gun club is kind of one of these ports in the storm of polarization to me where like you have each side and they they dug in on a very, very stringent view of how 
people who own guns ought to think and look and act. And, <laughs> and you guys seem like you're in a space where you don't necessarily fully agree with this side or that side. Like maybe you agree with them, you know, a lot of conservatives on what they have their views of guns, but, but not on a lot of other issues. Uh, and maybe you agree with a lot of liberals on the other issues, but not on their view on guns. Um, and, and so you're, you're these, uh, sort of an independent minded group that is, is, um, very unique in, in that sense to me. And, and I think it gives you a certain, like you were talking about there with, uh, when you go and speak to Democrats, for instance, you know, the, let's just take Virginia, for example. Um, you know, uh, maybe Democrats will listen to the NRA or, or the Virginia Citizens Defense League, uh, but some of them are probably going to be uh, unwilling to even hear those groups out because of uh, the aggressive nature of, of how they um, undertake gun advocacy, uh, whereas they might be more willing to listen to you guys uh on the same issue and i think that's uh that's an interesting advantage that that you guys have created in the political realm and then of course uh you know there's the whole social aspect of it which i think is even bigger really than the the political advocacy side uh of what what you guys are doing no i i i agree with that completely um yeah we there is a there is a i think uh there's probably a level of trust when there is a lot of value overlap and you're able to say, Hey, we're sort of, we see things the way that you do, but here's something that we see a little differently. So mm -hmm. there's, you know, you, you definitely, I think you can have a, you can come across in a different way when you can sort of meet yeah. somebody at that place. Which probably helps in, in at least to some degree with overcoming that polarization and, and uh, persuading people. But, uh, but yeah, so that's uh, one, one of the reasons I've always found uh, the liberal gun club to be a really fascinating institution um and and i think we're seeing more and more groups like that mm -hmm. uh crop up you know the um national african-american gun association would be another example of a a group that is um you know has the same basic views on guns as the nra or or goa or these other groups but uh is directing its message at a specific group of people who don't feel included uh, all the time in, in the gun rights community, um, just from speaking with them. Uh, and, and so it's interesting to see the rise of these sorts of groups, uh, as, as, uh, gun ownership diversifies and expands. Yeah. And, and talking about polarization, yeah, we try, and I think it would do a legitimate effort at, it's not like you have to have all the same views. There's a lot of diversity and a lot of, mm -hmm. a lot yeah. of, uh, debate that happens in our group. You know, there are people that have very different, you know, from middle of the road, just a little left of center to very far left to people who don't even know and, you know, may not even want to define themselves in that way. So we try to be, you know, open minded, you know, to, mm. to everyone and have it being an open and inclusive sort of place. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And and so you uh, you found out the reload from uh, getting involved with the Liberal Gun Club. What was it that made you decide to become a member? Um, I think I became a member after listening to just one or two episodes. Um, I think that the guests you have on are very knowledgeable. Um, they were very, um, they let me, you know, I, I felt like I learned a lot, but I also, I think it was you, uh, uh, Steven, um, the way that you will, the way that you let people talk, but then if somebody says something that is 
a little bit, I don't know how to say out there, or if it's a little bit demonizing, or if somebody is trying to write somebody off, you'll, you will, you know, say, Hey, you know, you know, you'll, you'll call not call them out explicitly, but say, Hey, you know, is that, is that really a, a fair assessment? Because these other people over here have that. So I feel like you, you guide the the show in a way where it ends up being a place where people still feel like they can show up and it doesn't become like, uh, I feel like everybody is, can listen to it without feeling like they're going to be beat up on or, you know, or something like that. So I feel like, uh, I really appreciated that because it's, especially in a, po a polarized issue like gun rights or something like that, all too often that you don't really get that. Hmm. No, thank you. Yeah. I mean, that's what we try to focus on, keeping things sober and, and serious, right? The catch, the catchphrase, our tagline <laughs> or whatever. But yeah. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I think it's something that's very important to me uh, as far as the show. Something I think I could, that it can set us apart a bit from other offerings out there uh, surrounding, you know, gun politics. Um, and and so I'm glad that that's uh, what appealed to you. And I hope it, I hope it appeals to other people too. Um, and it has so far, right? We're, we're doing we're doing well. We're not, you know, I'm not a millionaire or anything, but we we are doing well, and we are getting a lot of support from uh, the, the readers and the listeners. Uh, and I, I greatly appreciate that because it's the only thing that makes it possible. You know, your membership and the, everyone else's membership uh, who's signed up thus far is the only form of income we have at the reload uh, now. And it's uh, something that sustained us and I'm hoping can grow us into an uh, even larger platform in the, you know, the, the future here. That's my goal for, for the reload long term. So um, hopefully other people are uh as enthused about it as, as you are uh and if they are they can they can head over to relay.com today and, and pick up a membership and and you know perhaps appear on the show the next member segment um uh you know that that's my hope that's uh and if not you know if, if you're not in the position to make a purchase today i think you, you can support the show by sharing the podcast you know sh sharing our newsletter sharing our stories uh rating the the podcast on whatever platform you're listening to it on, you know, whether it's Apple podcasts or Spotify or, or what have you, uh, those things all help tremendously for us. Um, but uh, of course it is members like Bobby who are the ones that uh, sustain our, our publications. So uh, I just wanted to say thank you, uh, Bobby, for coming on the show and for, for being a member. You're very welcome. Thanks for putting on the podcast and thanks Absolutely. for asking me. Yes, thank you for joining. We, uh, we, we, that's all we've got for this week, so uh, make sure you stay tuned. We'll be back soon. <laughs>